I know some of you are going to tell me afterwards. I should have let you remain seated for that. So we'll get all of this right as we keep moving through. But it's good to stand. Uh, it's good to stand as we sing, especially a hymn like that. Uh, we are in the book of Romans. We have just begun, uh, really, a study of the book of Romans. We're in verses 18 through 23 tonight. We're really going to deal with this passage over two weeks, actually. There's so much here that's important tonight kind of looking at the whole of it and then really focusing on one aspect of it next week, Lord willing. But that is where we are this evening in Romans chapter 1. We've already been through the introduction of Romans. We've seen the Apostle Paul, how he understands himself, how he describes himself. And those are always very helpful for us to see, as you see Paul writing as a servant of Jesus Christ, called by God to be an apostle, and set apart, he says, for this gospel of God, which is really the the heart and theme of the book of Romans. It is about the gospel of God in his son, Jesus Christ. He goes on to remind the Romans as he writes with apostolic authority. Remember, a church he's never visited and presumably no other apostle has been there as well. He longs to be there, as we'll see in just a moment, but he writes that this gospel of God has been already spoken of by God in the Holy Scriptures As you look at the Old Testament, you can see that very clearly. It is a gospel that concerns his son, who was, as he said, descended from David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So all of this is really helpful for us to understand as Paul describes his own ministry, his own calling, and sets before them this gospel which God has spoken from ages past. He then writes to these Roman believers, and again, presumably these are believers who were in Rome, most likely because some of them had come from uh, Pentecost, had believed the gospel, and went back to Rome. A church seemingly was established. Again, no apostolic visitor there, no apostle went uh, to teach them or to establish this church. This was by the work of God and by his grace in establishing believers there. And you can see in Paul's words, especially as you look at verses 8 through 15, his desire is to be there, to teach them. Uh, And and he says he really wants to go and share with them his apostolic gifts. And remember, as we studied that, that was because Paul understood that those miracles that accompanied his own preaching and teaching, as was true of Jesus... As the gospel was being established, the kingdom of Christ and his church being established, God often accompanied that gospel with miraculous works. He says, I want to share with you a spiritual gift. That's probably what he has in mind so that they might understand and be established firmly upon that revelation of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he expresses his longing to be with them. He expresses his desire to preach the gospel to all who are in Rome. And then in verses, as we saw last week, 16 and 17, he really gives them what is the theme of the whole book, that this book is about the revelation of God's righteousness in Jesus Christ, for the just shall live by faith. And we looked at that again last week. This week we begin in the body of the letter in verse 18 through 23. And again, Uh, More broadly, looking at the verses as a whole, uh, trying to piece them together, what Paul is saying, and then next week coming back and looking really very particularly at one issue that I think comes up here a lot 
as we study uh, the book of Romans and and really the, the whole of the Bible, questions that people may have. Well, at this point, though, it would be a great question to ask as you look at the transition between 16 and 17, Uh, And then verse 18, a great question to ask is, why does the Apostle Paul appear suddenly to change topics from the good news of the gospel in verses 16 and 17, which is the revelation of the righteousness of God in Christ, received by faith alone, to talk about verses regarding God's wrath and his judgment against sin? Well, to this I would say that the knowledge of this wrath of God is an essential and fundamental part of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, what Paul does here is an imperative to remind us that we need to begin where Paul does. As he uh, uh, sort of unfolds the message of the gospel through the book of Romans, we need to begin where he begins, which is in the revelation of the wrath of God. I hope this will become more and more clear as we study not only tonight, but in the coming weeks. Uh, To that end then, let's stand as is our practice uh, each week as we read God's word. Before the preaching of the word, as we give our attention to it, this is the word of God, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse." For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Thus far the reading of God's word, all flesh is as the grass, all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Our Father, we are utterly dependent upon your spirit to be our teacher, to guide us, lead us into all truth and understanding, and especially as we consider those things tonight that Uh, clearly are opposed to our natural desires and our natural understanding. And so grant us grace that we might hear your word, that we might receive it with joy, and that we might see in it as we examine these words together the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. One of the features, the great features, really, of the book of Romans is the way that the Apostle Paul lays out for these, his readers, with whom he is remembering, uh, remember, unfolding the gospel for them, such an orderly, careful, logical, and persuasive argument of and for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wants to be very very careful, and he is throughout this book. We'll we'll see the beauty of his argument, the the way it all hangs together, flows from one section to another, even as we begin this 
the first of many sections that we'll be studying together. And so as we move through this book together, I hope we will see that very, very clearly. That's why I think, again, I mentioned this, I think it may be in the opening sermon that uh, so many people have used uh, one of the uh, perhaps most familiar and helpful evangelism tools called the Roman road. When you are taking the, the hearer, the one with whom you're sharing the gospel, through key sections of the book of Romans, especially the first 10 chapters, as you take them through those key verses, and it's very clearly laid out, you're taking them through what the Apostle Paul is doing for these believers in Rome as he writes this letter. It's a very, again, very helpful tool if you've never used it before. But we're looking at this section because this is the beginning of his taking these readers through the gospel. And as we look at this section, it may be helpful because we, we do have lots of medical people in our congregation. It might be helpful to look at this from a medical perspective. What Paul does in verses 16 and 17 is to give the cure the cure at the outset of his book. In the providence of God, he has told us that the cure is the gospel of God in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. Namely, it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, verses we looked at last week. Because in the gospel, God has revealed a righteousness that is received by faith alone. That is the cure. That is going to guide us in everything we do through our study of the book of Romans. That's what God has provided for sinners like you and like me. But beginning in verse 18 and really through verse 20 of chapter 3, he tells us the problem or the disease that affects us, the condition that all of us have because of our fall in Adam and Eve. In a word, it is sin. And what he is going to tell us here at the very outset is that sin provokes God to anger and to wrath. That's really what we're looking at this evening. The way in which our sin, our ungodliness and unrighteousness, in which we live by nature, being fallen in Adam, provokes God to wrath. This is an active expression of the wrath of God. This is an unpopular thought in our day, clearly unpopular. When God is perceived to be only a God of love and of compassion, of understanding, to, to speak of him, as we will do tonight, as a God of active wrath against the rebellion of men is really an unpopular message in our day. But it is the message of the gospel. Remember, it not only presents the cure, but it tells us what the problem or the disease is as well. And so to go through this, I was thinking this week of how best to do it. There are lots of ways we could go through it, just verse by verse, and we will be looking at each verse. But it came to me this week because it's a great memory in my own life as we raise our children. There is that curious stage that our children go through as they look at the world and they try to understand the world and they ask lots and lots of questions. Most of us know that who've raise children, especially through those younger years. Some of you are learning it now. Most children go through this stage where they ask the why question all the time. Every question begins with why. You see a man standing on a corner as you're driving the car, waiting to cross the street. 
Why is that man standing there, Daddy? Well, to cross the street. Why does that man want to cross the street, Daddy? Maybe because he's trying to get to that store on the other side. Why is he going to the store? To get some food for dinner. Why does he need food for dinner? Because he's hungry. Why is he hungry, Daddy? Because he didn't have lunch. Why didn't he have a lunch today? Because he had a meeting at work. Why did they make him have a meeting, Daddy? Because he had a project to get done. Why is he doing a project at lunch, Daddy? Because his boss made him do it. Why did his boss make him work at lunch and not eat? Because sometimes people are just mean. <laughs> and then you realize that as you get to the end of this little game, that you've talked about a man you've never met before and you've slandered his boss that you've never <laughs> met either. And so you say what you should have said in the beginning, which is what? I have no idea. I don't know. I don't know. Well, thankfully, as we come to this passage, Paul tells us the answers to those why questions. And it's what I want to do as we approach this, really three why questions. I'm not going to play the game like I just did. I'm going to answer them as Paul does and begin first with this question. And it relates to two sections, last week and this week. Why did God, why did God reveal a righteousness in the gospel? The answer is, because God is displaying his wrath against all mankind. That's really the answer. Why did God display a righteousness or reveal a righteousness in the gospel? Because God is revealing his wrath against all mankind. Now this is something very important that we have to see and it's not by accident. Paul talks here of two revelations or two ways in which God is revealing something. It's the same word. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed, he says in verse 17. That is in the work of Christ. But God, for God, is revealing as well this wrath from heaven. He displays wrath because, because, or he displays or reveals this righteousness because he is displaying a wrath against all mankind. It's the cure and the sickness again brought together. It is the same work that we see in verse 17, but it presents it by a way of contrast as Paul wants the reader to see it. Righteousness is being revealed in the gospel. Wrath is being revealed in God's anger towards sin and sinners. The one requires, if God is determined to save a people, the one requires the other. John Murray defines wrath this way, the holy reverse, revulsion, revulsion of God's being against that which is in contradiction to his holiness. That's a famous uh, definition that most uh, preachers talk about as they deal with this subject, but it's a very helpful one. The holy revulsion of God's being against that which is in contradiction to his holiness. Charles Hodge goes on to say that his wrath is his punitive justice and his determination to punish sin. Murray again goes on later to write, the wrath of God is dynamically and effectively operative in this world of men 
and it is proceeding, notice, according to the verse, from heaven, the throne of God, and thus it is active. It is a positive outgoing of divine displeasure. These, again, are ideas that are offensive to our culture today. But you can just simply scour the scriptures themselves. And if you look at them, you'll find in the Old Testament there are over 600 references to the wrath of God. Using some, as some count it, 20 or more different words used for that idea of God's anger or wrath towards sin. Think of Psalm 5, Psalm 7, Psalm 11. God hates the wicked. God is angry with the wicked every single day. These are references and passages that talk about his anger and wrath against man's rebellion and sin. In the New Testament, in Romans alone, we'll see Paul using the term wrath in this section many, many times, over and over again. The word itself or words that relate to the idea of God's anger or wrath displayed against sin. Many of you have heard that Jesus, during his earthly ministry, had talked about God's wrath displayed in hell as he has prepared hell for the fallen angels and all of those who will follow in their way, that he speaks of hell more than he does any other topic of which he speaks. He speaks of things in terms like the fires of his anger or his wrath, that is God's. Paul speaks, as we are very familiar with in Ephesians 2, of the natural man, apart from Christ, being under the wrath of God. And you were dead, he says, in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying around or out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath or under wrath like the rest of mankind. If you've ever read Jonathan Edwards' sermon, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, you can't read that sermon and not get the point that Paul is saying here, that there is an active wrath, an anger of God emanating, coming from heaven itself, from his throne, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. You see that in Edwards' sermon. It's based, as you may know, from a text in Deuteronomy 32, 35. Is not this laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? This is the Lord speaking. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. He also references in that sermon other passages like Amos 9 of those who want to try in desperation and futility to flee that wrath and to run from God. The prophet says this, speaking of the Lord, if they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. 
And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword, and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. What Paul is saying here is that this active wrath of God coming from heaven itself from his throne is being revealed every single day. Since the beginning of time in the fall of man, God's wrath is being revealed. So think of all the judgments of God, the great calamitous judgments of God that history has revealed. All of it is an expression of the wrath of God against sinful humanity. It's because of man's unrighteousness and his ungodliness. Those two words often are a reference to ungodliness being with relation to God, our worship and love of God, our failure to do so. And unrighteousness typically understood as that which has to do with our relationship with our fellow man as we're commanded to love our neighbor as we do ourselves. In both of these realms, and because of it all together, God's wrath, Paul says, is being revealed. This is Paul's indictment. If you think of the courtroom, it is Paul as a lawyer arguing for the prosecution on behalf of God that God has set down an indictment against the entire human race. Now, it is true as we continue to go through the study of this section, really chapter 1 through chapter 3, we're going to see that Paul is really dealing primarily in this section with the Gentiles, those who do not have the law as the Jews did. And then he's going to turn to the Jews. But the whole of it is an indictment against the whole human race. All of us, all of them are under the wrath of God. And Paul says it's, again, constantly being revealed in small ways and in great ways. I'm reminded of Jesus, and though his words do not express it in this this exact way, as Paul does here, there's, there's clearly a sense in which Jesus is referencing the way God's wrath is revealed in mysterious ways in Luke 13. Remember, as he's told about Pilate mingling the blood of the martyrs with sacrifices, as he's told of the Tower of Siloam falling, you remember Jesus's words. All of you repent unless things like this happen to you. It is an expression, no doubt, in some mysterious way of this ongoing revelation of God's wrath. And all humanity, Paul says, is under this indictment. In fact, that's where he's going to end up in the third chapter. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, no, not one. This indictment establishes, then, man's great need. It connects the revelation of his righteousness in Christ, in the gospel, with the revelation of his wrath. It establishes man's lostness. Perhaps we can say it this way. God, in his mercy, is revealing a righteousness in Christ through the gospel because he has declared that all mankind is under his wrath. As a God who has chosen according to his own pleasure and eternal purpose and plan to rescue sinners like us, he must also display what he is rescuing us from. Man must see, Paul says, they must see 
themselves under his wrath and anger before they can ever know or come to know his grace of rescuing him and them from that wrath. The gospel enters this fallen world as a remedy for man's sinful condition and his woeful state of being under the wrath of God. The second why question then is, well, why does God display his wrath? Why is he pleased to do so? The answer, according to these verses, and again, we're working through them generally. We'll get more specific next week. The answer is because mankind has rejected God's revelation of himself. The idea here, according to Paul, is that in their unrighteousness of life and of heart, they, according to verse 18, have suppressed the truth. Some versions have the word hinder the truth. Some argue that that's the better understanding. Many commentators, I think, agree that this picture of a suppression of God's truth is probably more helpful as we seek to understand what Paul is saying. There is a pushing down, a rejection of, if you will, the truth of God as he has been pleased to reveal it. Where has he revealed it? Well, Psalm 19 again. Day and night they pour forth speech. The speech is of the wonders of God's creation which reflect, according to Paul and the rest of Scripture, the very character and nature of God. For his invisible attributes, verse 20, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. You see what Paul's argument is. That God has built into creation, and think about the creation that we see as we go through our days, as we travel this world that God has made. God's character, his nature, right? His eternal power clearly, clearly displayed in everything that God has made. We've often talked about people who have traveled and seen the great sights of our world Uh, When you've gone to the top of a mountain at midnight in the complete darkness and looked into the heavens above, in, in all of these experiences that we behold with our eyes, God has made it plain, his character, he's made that plain for all to see. The, the, the phrase here, divine nature, is, is really a phrase, I think, that covers the idea that everything that makes God who he is, that makes God God, the qualities of his nature is really what Paul is after here. All of that is displayed in creation around us. His wrath is displayed because mankind in his sin, and we'll see this in a few moments, has pushed that knowledge down. The understanding that mankind can see evaluate, if you will, all that God has seen, but in response because of his sinful nature, instead presses it down, is the reason why his anger and wrath are provoked, why God pours that out upon mankind. 
I don't know who it was. I think it may have been the elders. We were talking, uh, some of us, about uh, those books that I, I don't know if we still have them. I'd have to check with my wife if we still do. They're wonderful books, actually. But uh, you may remember, some of you at least, if you're old enough, the, the Institute for Basic Life Principles led by Bill Gothard. I don't support him, of course, or uh, a lot of things that came out over the years, but uh, those books are actually very valuable. They're called character sketches, if you've ever seen them. They're beautifully done books with wonderful illustrations, and they're all a way for uh, the characteristics of what God calls us to be and how he calls us to live are seen in the creation of the many animals that he has made in this world. They're they're worth reading. They're worth uh, looking at. Character traits like, I think in the first book, loyalty, responsibility, courage, determination, orderliness, initiative, decisiveness. These kinds of traits that are consistent with the Christian and the nature of the new man in Christ are reflected in the animals that that the Lord has made. That's just one example of how it is that God's creation reflects, points us to the truth of who he is. And so as we think of those things, it's wonderful to look at the world and to draw from the world what we understand and know about God. But the natural man doesn't do that. The natural man, because of his sin, suppresses all of that. And that, again, is what provokes God's wrath and anger The Bible is full of places, and uh, Psalm 19 I mentioned, but Job 12, Job writes this or says this, or I think it's the Lord speaking, ask the beasts, and they will teach you, or maybe one of his friends actually at this point, but ask the beast, and they will teach you, the birds of the heavens, and they will tell you, or the bushes of the earth, and they will teach you, and the fish of the sea, and they will declare to you, who among all of these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this. God's character is revealed. His divine nature, his eternal power is revealed in creation itself. Perhaps one of the most famous biblical illustrations comes from the book of Proverbs, chapter 6, where when dealing with the sluggard or the lazy person, remember the words of the writer of Proverbs, the Writer says this, go to the ant, O sluggard, and consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? And when will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Diligence in our labor. Um... Faithfulness in our work, our characters of the new man in Jesus Christ. And the writer of Proverbs says, do we want to understand this? Go to the ant then and watch the ant. Because in the ant, one of the tiniest, smallest of the creatures that God has made, he has woven into that creature that he has made the ability to teach us about the character of God himself and of how we ought to live And those are all what Paul says are the reasons when we suppress that truth in unrighteousness, when we reject it, when we refuse to believe it and obey it, this provokes the anger and the wrath of God. 
All are without excuse, he says, all, because God has so revealed himself and so clearly in all that he has made. Well, that leads us to one final why. And again, we're going to come back to this uh, particularly with one focus next week. But this last why is important. And it really captures, I think, the whole of everything else that Paul says here together. Why did mankind reject this revelation? Why does mankind do this? The answer, and I, I think it's here, and I'm going to read it this way. The answer is because in their sin... They became futile in their thinking, and their hearts were darkened. Paul says that very clearly in verse 21, that although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor did they give him thanks. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. There's kind of a progression here in these verses, almost a circular progression, Because man is by nature a sinner, by nature his mind and heart are both futile in its thinking and darkened in its understanding. So mankind, because of the fall, because we understand what that fall means when we talk about the doctrine of total depravity, we understand that our very beginning with respect to these things is that we cannot properly understand them in and of themselves apart from the grace of God. That, that is the reason, ultimately, and in the beginning, that we even suppress the truth because we're not seeing it for what it is because we can't because of the blindness of our hearts and the futility of our thinking. And so we suppress the truth. We fail to honor God as God, which all creation says. We've just sung it in Psalm 104. All creation calls us to rejoice in God, to rejoice in his works, to acknowledge him as the one who has made all things. We fail in our sin to honor him. And then we fail to give thanks to him as the one who has made everything that we see and provides everything that we have need of. Our minds become again over futile in their thinking. Our hearts become more darkened. We claim to be wise in our own wisdom and understanding apart from God, but instead we have become fools. We exchange the glory of the immortal God revealed in creation as he has for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals and creeping things. We remove God from everything and we worship ourselves. That's really what Paul is saying. We remove him. We take him out of the equation. We deny that he has made everything. We reject his revelation. And around and around we go on this downward spiral that will lead, as we'll see in Romans chapter 3, to a horrible end. A horrible end. R.C. Sproul says with regard to their thinking becoming futile and their hearts becoming darkened, What Paul means, he says, is that the issue of the existence of God in the final analysis is not an intellectual question as much as it is a moral question. Man's speculations end in darkness because they proceed from a denial at the beginning of what they know to be true. The problem with man is not so much a lack of knowledge of God 
as it is a refusal to acknowledge him. Man begins his intellectual quest by refusing to acknowledge what he knows to be true. And this, again, is what provokes God to wrath. And all of that is because of our sin. That is why God's wrath is being displayed. They cannot properly think of these things because of sin. They cannot properly think of the world because they have rejected God. They reject God because they willingly choose to do so. Everything is perverted, everything made crooked. And how much more so as we look at the day in which we live, how everything is being turned upside down. How do we get to that place? Well, Paul's going to have a lot more to say as to how we get to that place, where we are today in the coming weeks. Something is very wrong, Paul is saying. There is no honor of God, no thankfulness to him. And because of that, his wrath is being revealed day by day, every day. All we have to do is have eyes to see it. We've seen it, many of us, in our own lives as we have perhaps experienced that wrath or that anger of God in our own experience prior to our conversion. Many of us have stories of God's anger and wrath, though we may not have called it that at the time, being displayed even in our individual lives. But certainly, as we look at the world around us, this ungodliness, unrighteousness of men that God sees all at once, as it were, he is provoked to anger. And that is, as we understand even from Edward's sermon, it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a living God who is filled with wrath and anger against sin and against ungodliness and righteousness of men. Well, we're going to build on these things. I mentioned next week we're going to come back to part of these verses to look at one particular aspect that I think is very important. And then from there we're going to build because Paul is going to give us more answers to understand the world in which we live today especially. But I want to close as we prepare to come to the Lord's table and transition to that means of grace by again reviewing with you these two revelations that God has given to us. There is, of course, as we've just seen, the revelation of his wrath. Since the beginning of time, following Adam's fall into sin, which then spread to all men, as Paul will go on to say, because all men sinned, God's wrath is being revealed against all ungodliness. We see it again through history and every culture, civilization, as God's righteous judgments fall and continue to fall in our day. Sinful man lives his whole life under God's wrath. And that's perhaps something we need to ask ourselves tonight. As we look at these two revelations, his wrath and in a moment his righteousness, we need to understand we're under one or the other. There aren't any other options. We are either living under the wrath of God, as Edwards said, hanging over the very fires of hell by a simple thread, ready to break at any moment. We're either under that wrath because God's wrath is provoked by our ungodliness and unrighteousness of life, or we're under this revelation of his righteousness in the gospel of Jesus Christ.
the gospel of which Paul is not ashamed, because it is through the gospel that his righteousness is revealed by faith alone. And those who believe the gospel and believe in Christ receive and stand in that righteousness before the presence of a holy God, so that his wrath is turned aside. That makes a great picture then of what we see in the Lord's Supper, doesn't it? Where do these two things come together most clearly? It is in the gospel of Jesus Christ as we see it displayed in his sacrifice on the cross, where the wrath of God was poured out upon his one and only son, not because of sins that he committed, but because of the sins of his people for whom he died, where that wrath of God, which was real and revealed throughout all of history and personally to every sinner, that that wrath was satisfied for the believer on the cross of Christ as he drank to the dreads or dregs that cup of his wrath, fully satisfying, fully propitiating the wrath and anger of God, turning it aside so that the believer can now be clothed in the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ, which God on that cross, when Jesus declared it is finished, declared as well that God had accepted his offering of a perfect life and a substitutionary death on behalf of all of those who would believe in him. It's at the cross, the table that we celebrate, where we see the wrath of God and the righteousness of God come together. And it is all through the person and work of Jesus Christ. I pray for each of you tonight that as we consider these things, these two revelations of his wrath and of his righteousness, that you can say without a doubt, confident in the promises of God, that you stand under his righteousness, clothed in the righteousness of Christ and not under his wrath. If you live now under his wrath, I plead with you, be reconciled to God, flee to Christ, where you will find a righteousness That is not yours, it's his, given to you by faith as you believe and trust in the gospel. We're going to study this more next week, but for now, join me as we pray. Our Father, as we come to now this, your table, where you have set before us these truths in a picture, in a form that delights our hearts and that we receive with joy, we pray that you would bless this means of grace Uh, to our growth, that we might have understanding of these things and all the more rejoice in what Jesus has accomplished for us through his suffering, his death, his perfect life, so that we might be and bear his righteousness alone. And we pray this with thanksgiving in his name. Amen.